The U.S. government and corporate media are hoping for regime change in Cuba, but the Cuban people and government are mobilizing to defend their revolution in spite of the severe hardships caused by the U.S. blockade. We discuss this, the political crisis and danger of U.S. intervention in Haiti, and more, along with a special interview with Kathy Rojas, the socialist candidate for mayor of New York City. We need a new system. We need a new society. We need to demand that which may have sounded impossible even a few weeks ago, but is not only realizable, but an imperative necessity. Welcome to today's episode of In the News, our Tuesday show on the socialist program with Brian Becker. It's July 13th, 2021. This is an in-depth look at the biggest stories in the news right now, today, and this week. We look beyond the headlines and expose the distortions in the corporate-owned media. If you enjoy the show, please support this independent programming by going to patreon.com slash the socialist program and subscribing. Once you subscribe, make sure to register for the next seminar with Brian, which is tomorrow, Wednesday, July 14th, at 7 p.m. Eastern, 4 p.m. Pacific. I'm Nicole Roussel, here with Esther Ivarum, Walter Smolarik, and our host, Brian Becker. Esther Ivarum is also the host of the radio show and podcast On the Ground at onthegroundshow.org. Make sure to check out On the Ground, which comes out weekly on Fridays. Brian, there's huge news out of Cuba in the past few days. Tell us what's going on. We have to think about Cuba in a particular context. Over the weekend, People came into the streets in different Cuban cities because they don't have enough food. They don't have enough medicine. They don't have enough electricity because their country has been deprived of that which is necessary to sustain life, civilian life in the modern era as a consequence of what can only be described as a nonstop U.S. imperialist war against their country. 62 years ago, Cuba shook the Western Hemisphere and it shook American imperialism when it overthrew a pro-U.S. dictator, Fulgencio Batista, as a consequence of an armed struggle led by the July 26th movement under the leadership of Fidel Castro. That revolution allowed Cuba to reclaim its independence and sovereignty from America. I don't mean that in a figurative sense. I don't mean that in a rhetorical sense. I mean that in a literal sense. The United States invaded Cuba in 1898. It seized Cuba. It turned Cuba into a colony. The United States government wrote the Constitution of Cuba. At the same time, the United States invaded Puerto Rico and made Puerto Rico a U.S. colony. And as part of the same military effort, the U.S. invaded the Philippines and made the Philippines a colony of the United States. A million Filipinos died. And Philippines, Cuba, Puerto Rico lost self-governance. They lost their independence, their sovereignty. And the Cuban Revolution was a revolution about independence, about freedom, about sovereignty. And for that, the American ruling class, Wall Street bankers, the CIA, the Pentagon, have never forgiven Cuba. 
They may say, oh, Cuba violates human rights or Cuba lacks democracy or this or that. None of that is the reason. The reason is that Cuba became free of American imperialist domination. And since then, the United States has waged a nonstop war against Cuba. The United States invaded Cuba in April 1961. That was the Bay of Pigs invasion. And the Cuban people rose up and defeated it. There were hundreds of efforts to assassinate the leader of the Cuban Revolution, Fidel Castro. On October 6, 1976, CIA-backed agents shot down a civilian airliner. That was October 6, 1976, shot down a civilian airliner, a Cuban airliner that had on board 60 members of young members, young Olympians from Cuba. They were murdered by the Americans, a terrorist act, shooting down a civilian airliner. The United States imposed even harsher embargoes and blockades on Cuba following the collapse of the Soviet Union and the socialist camp, which Cuba relied on for economic aid and economic trade, not to mention diplomatic and military support. When the Soviet Union and the socialist camp collapsed in 1991, the U.S. really went for it and strengthened the blockade against Cuba. And American imperialism was sure that Cuba, like the Soviet Union, like East Germany, like Bulgaria, like Poland, the other socialist bloc countries would be destroyed and that there would be a new puppet neo-colonial government in Cuba. But the Cuban people, under the leadership of the Communist Party and the leadership of Fidel, were able, in spite of great odds, to be able to overcome those obstacles and to be able to endure. Then Barack Obama, in 2014, recognizing that the American policy to destroy Cuba had failed and that it had only isolated the United States in Latin America, where Cuba is so popular, decided to normalize relations with Cuba and the U.S., and Cuba opened up embassies in Havana and in Washington, D.C. for the first time in 54 years. And there was a great hope and promise that perhaps there would be a real normalization of relations between the two countries, that the United States and Cuba could act as if they were neighbors instead of existential adversaries. And certainly that's what Cuba wanted. But when Donald Trump came in, he imposed 243 more sanctions on Cuba. He made it almost impossible for Cuba to carry on business. Then Cuba, which is reliant on tourism, was hit so hard by COVID. And now the Biden administration has not lifted any of those measures that Trump imposed on Cuba, and people are suffering. Nicole, the United States hopes that the people coming out into the streets in Cuba will be the human material for regime change. That's what the U.S. did in Iran in 1953 or Guatemala in 1954 and in so many other countries where the U.S. has conducted color revolutions or regime change. But the Cuban government did not treat the people who came into the streets as counter-revolutionaries, even though the U.S. hopes this will mature into a counter-revolutionary situation, an opportunity, and we don't know yet how this will play out, the Cuban government went out, spoke to the people, spoke strongly to the people, and explained that the real problem facing the Cuban people and the Cuban economy is U.S. imperialism. 
And is the sanctions? I know you, Nicole, had a chance to talk to Manolo de los Santos earlier today. He's an expert on Cuba. He's an expert on Latin America. I mean, I think it's really important that you were able to have that conversation and share his thoughts and his insights with our audience. Yeah, so I spoke with Manolo de los Santos. He's the co-director of the People's Forum in New York, and he's a researcher with the Tri-Continental Institute for Social Research, and he is definitely an expert on Cuba, as you said, Brian. I want to play one part of our interview that's about you know, the hardships that Cubans are facing, the hardships that they have been facing, but just how much worse it's gotten through the blockade, through the additional sanctions from President Trump, through COVID. I want to play that now and have our audience hear directly from, again, an expert on Cuba, Manolo de los Santos. How serious are the hardships that people are facing in Cuba and why are they facing such serious hardships? Well, the situation internally in Cuba is extremely serious. On one hand, you have a almost 60-year-old blockade, which has been imposed by the United States government unilaterally on the people of Cuba, and that you know prevents them from accessing on the world market and from the U.S. directly many of the basic foods and medicines that most countries simply are able to buy. Cuba's prevented from doing this. I would add to that that just in the four years of the Trump administration, 243 new sanctions measures were imposed on Cuba that prevented even more basic things like Cuban-Americans being able to send remittances to their families in Cuba, being able to travel regularly to Cuba. Measures were made so that, you know, Cubans weren't able to import oil from other countries from which they have, you know, excessive relationships with. So it's basically the Trump administration made every effort possible to strangle the Cuban people. And the Biden administration has continued it or hasn't done anything to, you know, lift that weight off the Cuban people. Even though, you know, especially in the midst of a pandemic, the UN, other international agencies, people's movements around the world have called for all sanctions and blockades to end. And lastly, again, the situation of the pandemic has really made this more difficult for the Cuban people because they've lost one of their main sources of income, which was international tourism. In fact, I was just looking at the last statements made by the Cuban Minister of Finance and Planning, who was basically sharing that just in 2020 alone, Cuba lost over 2.4 billion US dollars in revenues. Revenues that always went towards the purchase of food and medicines, despite all the you know, difficulties imposed by the blockade. So I would say that the situation in Cuba is extremely difficult right now. The Cuban people are being forced to starve, not by their government, but by these continued policies of asphyxiation that are designed and are imposed by the United States government. There are some who call sanctions a humane alternative to war, to bombing. What are sanctions really? I mean, sanctions are probably the least humane thing that could ever have been dreamt up by the United States government, because particularly when it comes to Cuba, sanctions are a set of policies that the government clearly stated back in 1961, that they were actually designed and intended to hurt, maim, and starve the Cuban people into submission so that they would overthrow their government. That's what the sanctions have done. And essentially, the sanctions basically cut into every aspect of Cuban life, and not just in Cuba, in places like Zimbabwe, 
in places like Iran and Venezuela, the DPRK, and many other countries around the world, these sanctions are essentially designed to cause the most damage without ever dropping a bomb, because they go after every avenue that these countries have to trade, to commerce, to engage with other countries around the world. And to even the concept of sanctions is a little bit controversial because sanctions in a legal sense would mean that they're in a sense agreed to upon by the international community or you know voted at at the UN. But that is not the case for this blockade against Cuba. These sanctions are completely unilateral. They're only imposed and decided on by the United States government. We're hearing stories out of Cuba that resources essentially are being diverted toward care for COVID. Is that something that you're hearing about? And is that another component? You talked a little bit about what's happening with the pandemic, but I know that that could be part two of the electricity issues that people are dealing with in Cuba as well. I mean, I think in the conditions of both the pandemic and the Titan and more cruel blockade of the U.S. government against their people, Cuba has made extraordinary measures in order to maintain and increase their medical capacity to deal with not just their regular patients, but with the actual growing number of COVID cases on the island. One of the things that they've done is to actually increase their spending on medical supplies, despite all the challenges. And the reports came out today that Cuba has already, just in the first quarter of the year, spent over $84 million on reactives, on medicine, on supplies to deal with the COVID increase. They've turned hotels and schools into hospital centers in order to meet the growing demands. But all these initiatives and efforts are limited in a sense because Cuba is still prevented from buying basic medicines abroad. In fact, there are examples that are given today of multiple Cuban attempts to buy painkillers, basic sedatives, reactives, and other necessary components for treatment of COVID patients, and them being basically blocked and denied by companies abroad out of fear of being fined by the United States government. Esther, Manolo really describes exactly what's been going on. And, you know, it describes just how much the blockade has tightened, even since last September 2020, when Trump really tightened down. Tell us more about, you know, what's going on. It's just making life so incredibly difficult, even impossible for so many Cubans who are trying to just get basic necessities like medicine and food. Yeah, Nicole, when I was listening to the interview and also to Brian earlier, I was thinking about how Cuba is being punished with this imposed hunger, you know, for having a revolution to overthrow what we know as a brutal U.S.-backed dictatorship. And I was just thinking about it in relationship to Haiti. Haiti is still being punished for a revolution two centuries ago, ousting for a revolution that overturned enslavement of its population. So it just so happens that as these actions over the weekend happened, Oxfam put out a report about hunger, you know, and it talked about how the COVID has exacerbated hunger around the world to the extent that as many as 11 people around the world are dying of hunger and malnutrition every minute, outpacing COVID-19 deaths. And I thought about that because the report singled out certain countries. For example, it talked about Afghanistan, Yemen, you know, where we know 
There's the worst humanitarian crisis on the planet. It talked about West African Sahel, South Sudan, Venezuela, and also Haiti. And Cuba is not even mentioned in that. And given the crisis there in terms of the blockade and the intensified sanctions, you can see that what's happening in Cuba is happening all around the world. And it's just that the U.S. has been able to manipulate the situation and put a focus on Cuba as this place where people are suffering, but people are suffering all around the world. And the U.S. is able to manipulate the situation to its own ends. And I think that we actually have a clip that gives an example of how the U.S. under the Trump administration intensified the already existing sanctions and blockade. As part of our continuing fight against communist oppression, I am announcing that the Treasury Department will prohibit U.S. travelers from staying at properties owned by the Cuban government. We're also further restricting the importation of Cuban alcohol and Cuban tobacco. These actions will ensure that U.S. dollars do not fund the Cuban regime and go directly to the Cuban people. Big difference, big difference, really. Wow. So you can hear Trump announcing these additional sanctions that were on top of already existing sanctions. And before Trump tightened these restrictions on Cuban people, they were at least able to get some remittances from families. They were able to enjoy some tourism dollars that really helped Cuba despite the sanctions and this blockade that the U.S. has long had on the country. The other thing that I really wanted to highlight was really how the media has covered what happened over the weekend because you would think that these types of sanctions and embargo would be mentioned in terms of the coverage, but no outlets, you know, like the BBC or most of the corporate media we hear in the United States, they just really discussed it as an uprising by the Cuban people against their government. And some people called it an authoritarian dictatorship when we know that Cuba is a socialist country that has used its resources in the past to benefit its people, where people have free health care, they have free education, they have free housing, and their human needs are met, unlike here in the U.S. So I just wanted to mention that David Adler, he's the general coordinator for the Progressive International, noted that the corporate U.S. media reported on Sunday's protests as though the embargo has little connection to Cuban suffering. And he said that the blockade has barred U.S. trade with Cuba since 1962 and has cost the island an estimated $130 billion, according to Cuban officials and the United Nations. And of course, Esther, the other things they don't mention are all of the protests that came out in support not only of Cuba, but demanding no imperialism from the United States. I'm going to play just a couple of short clips from rallies over the weekend. They're chanting, the street belonged to Fidel. Fidel Castro, of course, the street belongs to Fidel. And then another one where they're saying, Cuba si, Yankee no. So, you know, it's a statement against imperialism. And then lastly, I want to go back to my interview with Manolo, because he addressed some of this as well. You know, I really wanted to talk to him too about 
as an American, as somebody who lives in the United States, a completely incredible and unique response is a very non-U.S. response that happened from the government on Sunday to the protesters. So here's more of my interview with Manolo. I want to talk to you about these protests that were happening in Cuba yesterday. The government responded in a way that I cannot even imagine a U.S. government ever responding. Leading members of the Cuban Communist Party went down to the protests and talked to the protesters. Can you tell us more about what happened and why that was their response and how protesters responded to that? Well, I think the first thing to say is that it's hard to understand from out of Cuba, looking at it from outside of Cuba, but the reality is that there's actually a very strong connection between the majority of the Cuban people and the leadership of the Communist Party of Cuba. They're not separate entities. They're not opposing or antagonistic parties in any way, shape, or form. And what happened yesterday is what the Communist Party of Cuba constantly does, which is that when there are challenges, when there are difficulties, when there are situations that go above and beyond, their first response is to go to the streets and talk to people. This is not a repressive government. No one was shot yesterday for protesting. There weren't any massive arrest or acts of repression like we would see, or actually like we did see in the United States during the Black Lives Matter protests just a year ago this time. You know, when Trump wanted to have a photo op, I don't know how many hundreds or thousands of people were arrested in D.C. and pepper sprayed and attacked in order for one photo in front of a church. In Cuba, none of that ever happened. In Cuba, the president, and not just the president of Cuba, but many communist leaders went and sat down with the people, listened to their grievances, which very legitimate in the sense that, yes, there is a scarcity of food. Yes, there's a scarcity of medicine. And there's an overwhelming consensus among the Cuban people that the main culprit for this is the U.S. blockade, which is economic, commercial, financial, political in so many different ways. So people are turning legitimate protest or legitimate voices of concern inside the country into sirens for so-called democracy or freedom or change in Cuba that have nothing to do with the reality of the Cuban people. These demands have nothing to do with actual needs of the Cuban people. And I think the message became clearer after many of these conversations were had. The consensus was even firmer that if the U.S. government actually cares about the Cuban people. If it says it really wants the Cuban people's suffering to end, then it should lift the blockade immediately. It could do so so simply. U.S. Congress and the U.S. president could work together right now to not just lift the blockade, but lift all these 243 sanctions measures against the Cuban people. And, I mean, that does seem to be the ultimate goal like that would be the biggest thing that would lift the, you know, incredible suffering of the Cuban people right now, you know, having a hard time getting access to food, electricity in the summer heat and basic medicine because of the blockade. Are there things that listeners who are hearing you right now and hearing about how horrendous this is, are there things that people can do here to really help push the U.S. government to lift that blockade? There are many things that people in the United States can do. And I think the first one is to put increasing and ever more stronger pressure on the Biden administration, on U.S. Congress, to actually take this question of Cuba seriously, to actually engage in dialogue with the Cuban people, to end the U.S. blockade, to end all forms of intervention against the people of Cuba. 
That's the first thing. And secondly, I do think that now is the time for people in the U.S. who really believe in peace, who really believe in solidarity, who really are in sympathy with the suffering of the Cuban people to actually begin thinking of ways in which we can share aid. You know, some media reports are saying that the Cubans are refusing to accept international aid. And that is absolutely untrue. They're willing to accept aid, but aid that doesn't come without any political conditions, aid that doesn't demand that their government resign immediately. And I think that there are good American people, citizens of this country, who should be willing to demonstrate what it looks like to give aid without political conditions. Brian, I think he's exactly right. Yes, but let's step back and also understand what is about to happen. Because the U.S. senses opportunity here, the U.S. government, not the American people. I agree with Manolo. We can and should do everything we possibly can to show solidarity with Cuba. And first and foremost, to rebut the lies promoted by the U.S. government and the corporate-owned media that this is somehow the problem and the failure of the Cuban government rather than the reality, which is that the U.S., a government with a $22 trillion economy, the biggest and most powerful military and intelligence services in the world, has been relentlessly targeting a country, an island country of 11 to 13 million for more than 60 years. And again, a country that has provided free health care, not only to its own people, but to people in Africa, throughout Latin America, a government that made education free, the Cuban life expectancy right now, even in spite of their poverty, is higher than the American life expectancy. That's right. The U.S. life expectancy is six months shorter than the Cuban life expectancy. Infant mortality in the United States is higher than it is in Cuba. And in the District of Columbia and in predominantly black communities, the infant mortality is double and triple what it is in Cuba. The problems that Cuba is enduring are the problems imposed by imperialism. The advantages and achievements are those that have been accomplished because it is organized on a socialist basis. And yet yesterday, Monday, Joe Biden said, we stand with the Cuban people and their clarion call for freedom and relief from the tragic grip of the pandemic and from the decades of repression and economic suffering to which they have been subjected by Cuba's authoritarian regime. When Cuba was dominated by the United States, was it not authoritarian? When the Cuban people took charge and reclaimed their own land, labor, and resources? except for the part of Cuba, which is called Guantanamo, which the United States seized and is still a a U.S. naval base and the only place in Cuba where torture actually takes place. So what we have here is duplicitous, lying, demagogic propaganda by Biden. Biden knows full well that the real problems that Cuba is enduring right now in 2021 are a consequence of Donald Trump intensifying the economic sanctions designed to strangle the economy, and that those sanctions by Trump, which overturned Obama's policy, and Biden was the vice president of Obama, Biden has maintained Trump's policy. Biden is Trump when it comes to Cuba. 
and this lying propaganda now that America stands with the Cuban people and their clarion call for freedom. No, it demonstrates that what the U.S. really hopes is that the suffering by the people in Cuba right now will allow for a new counter-revolutionary process to take hold. It has not yet taken hold, but the Cuban government is trying to manage the situation. American imperialism and the CIA and all of its different institutions of power are going to try to promote counter-revolution. We have to rebut their lies and show who's to blame. Brian, I think that's exactly right and incredibly important analysis that we have to think about in the coming days as things ramp up. There's another country in a very similar region, in the same region, Haiti, that has also had a lot of U.S. imperialism directed right toward it. And just last week, the president, Jovenel Moise, was assassinated. There's still a lot of open questions, but Walter, tell us a little bit more about what's happening and what you think is really going on. Yeah, well, this is a very, very profound political crisis that's made so much worse by the United States and, of course, actually rooted in U.S. intervention. The president of Haiti, Jovenel Moise, was assassinated in his home. There has been a massive manhunt going on in Haiti and elsewhere to find out both who the people who actually killed Moise are and who the intellectual authors of the assassination plot is. There's a lot of unanswered questions right now. But what we do know for sure is that the U.S. government is looking at this crisis as an opportunity to deepen its involvement and control over the politics of Haiti. Uh, We've reported on the socialist program a lot about the massive demonstrations that had been taking place in Haiti against Moise's administration for several years now. The Moise administration was ruling in a dictatorial fashion with the support of the United States and the masses of Haitian people were rising up against him. But his assassination has plunged the country into chaos. So there's a void at the top. The president was assassinated. According to the Haitian constitution, in such an event, the chief justice of the Supreme Court is meant to step in and try to restore order to the government. But the chief justice of the Supreme Court died just a few weeks before the assassination from COVID-19. There is a prime minister in the Haitian political system in addition to the president. But the very day before he was assassinated, Moise fired the present prime minister and appointed somebody else, designated somebody else. But that new prime minister had not yet had a chance to officially assume office. So there's now two people claiming to be prime minister. And then there was somebody claiming to be the new president of the country, a member of the country's Senate, who was supported by eight other senators. But the problem there is that the majority, the vast majority of the Senate is no longer participating in that institution because its mandate has expired. So it's really an open question which direction things will go in Haiti. But one thing's for sure, US intervention will make things worse. We know that from the last two centuries of U.S. intervention in Haiti, really a war waged against the country by the United States and all of the imperialist countries of the world, an act of revenge, essentially, for the Haitian Revolution, the first successful rebellion by enslaved people, revolution by enslaved people in the Western Hemisphere, established a new republic, the first independent Black republic, and became a beacon 
a symbol of hope for oppressed people in the world struggling for freedom. And so the brutal, vicious exploitation of the Haitian people, Haiti's natural wealth, is coupled with this political task of suppressing Haitian sovereignty that for centuries has been a top priority of the most powerful countries, empires in the world. So this is a new chapter in that saga. And the guy we have in charge right now in the United States, President Joe Biden, said this about Haiti in 1994. If Haiti just quietly sunk into the Caribbean or rose up 300 feet, it wouldn't matter a whole but lot in terms of our interests. War- wouldn't matter a whole lot, Brian. Joe Biden's just fine with that. But I mean, most importantly, it's not even true because the United States has actually been intervening, like Walter said, for years. In 1915, maybe you can tell us more about this. The United States took money from Haiti and deposited it in a New York bank. Well, yes, that's one way to put it. There's another (laughs) way to put it, which is that the U.S. Marines landed in Haiti in 1915 under the orders of Woodrow Wilson, the pro-KKK president here in Washington, D.C. They marched into the center of Port-au-Prince, the capital. They went to the central bank. They emptied it of all of its contents And then they brought the money, all of Haiti's federally possessed money, brought it back to a ship and had the ship come to New York City, where it was then deposited in a U.S. bank. And then the U.S. Marines occupied Haiti from 1915 to 1930. But don't anyone confuse this with authoritarianism, because it was done by a very democratic president, a very democratic country with the very best intentions, very just noble intentions. I mean, this has been the story of Haiti. The United States, as Biden said, you know, the U.S. government officials and the U.S. media treat Haiti in the most racist kind of way. They depict the country as a failed state. And Haiti is in many ways a country that's been torn asunder. But, you know, the problems that Haiti has, like the problems that Cuba has, the problems of most of Latin America in the Caribbean. These are the problems that are rooted in colonialism and the inability of the people in Haiti to go all the way to have a socialist revolution later in the 20th century when it might have been possible. Instead, the U.S. imposed and supported military dictatorships like Papa Doc Duvalier and Baby Doc Duvalier that ruled over the Haitian people with an iron fist. And those dictatorships had the full support of America. Only when the rebellion of the Haitian people in the 1990s against baby Doc Duvalier made it clear that his days were numbered, did the U.S. State Department then put him in a car, drive him to the airport, and help him fly to somewhere else. And then the U.S. could say, See, we were part of the anti-dictatorship movement because we helped get rid of him. But that was only because the masses in Haiti had made it impossible for him to stay. Just like what the U.S. did with Mubarak during the Egyptian uprising in 2011. Finally, at the last minute, their proxy, their puppet was no longer able to stay in power. And they distanced themselves and said, oh, good, we're for you, the people in your democratic uprising. When in fact, US imperialism and French imperialism have done this to the Haitian people. Haiti had to pay reparations. 
Haiti had to pay reparations to France for overthrowing the slavocracy, the French colonial slavocracy that had kept them in chains. That was the condition under which Haiti was allowed to engage in international commerce. Again, if we look at the problems in any given country, in the Caribbean or elsewhere, and take it out of the context of imperialism and colonialism, you can't possibly understand what's really going on. Let's move to another story. This is a domestic but very related story about Pfizer, also out pretty much just for money. Headline, Pfizer suggests booster shots will be needed this year, but government officials say science will dictate the timing. Just to frame this for people, as you all may have seen and heard, Pfizer is really a huge proponent, unsurprisingly, of booster shots. You know, the people who've gotten Pfizer have already had two shots of the vaccine. And the goal essentially was to wait and see what happens and see when or if a booster shot might be needed. But Pfizer is saying, it's time. We got to get moving on that. And, you know, obviously there's a financial incentive to do that. But of course, when you look at the actual science and the actual data, scientists are saying we have to keep waiting. It's not true. We don't need booster shots right now. So you can get that part in the beginning of the article. But when you get down most of the way through the article, here's where you get to the real set of incentives. I'm going to start reading now from the Washington Post. Pfizer announced in May that it projected global sales of its coronavirus vaccine to reach $26 billion in 2021. The company has also been frank that its current pricing in the United States, $19.50 a shot, that's $19.50 a shot, is temporary. On an earnings call in February, Pfizer's executive vice president of global supply noted that a more typical price for a vaccination was $150 or $175 per dose. And then this is a quote from him, Frank A. D'Amelio, quote, now let's go beyond a pandemic pricing environment, the environment we're currently in. Obviously, we're going to get more on price, he said. So clearly, there's a significant opportunity for those margins to improve once we get beyond the pandemic environment that we are in, unquote. The article goes on to say a report by Bloomberg intelligence analysts Sam Fazelli and John Murphy in May found that boosters could represent an $11 billion to $37 billion market each year globally. If vaccines have been retooled to match new variants, that market could grow even more. Their modeling suggested that if Pfizer were to capture some of that business and sell more doses than currently expected in 2022, it could result in even up to a 53% increase in the company's operating profit. Brian, I am so excited for Pfizer and their profit, and they're forcing these boosters on people that aren't necessary, and this profit is really exciting for them. I mean, this is the news I want to hear. Well, you know, I think there's another side to it. I'm glad you mentioned this article because it shows that under capitalism, the vaccines and the vaccine rollout and the issue of booster shots, it's all really for the companies premised on profits and their profits. They're the ones who are getting ever, ever richer. And Esther, you know, this is a matter of huge importance for the public because the public needs to be vaccinated. We just saw that the last hundred people who died of COVID in the state of Maryland, nearby where we are, none of them were vaccinated. The 100 people who have just died in Maryland were unvaccinated people. The vaccines are necessary. And at the same time, both for legitimate reasons and also for political reasons and sometimes for religious reasons, there's this campaign against vaccinations. There's the anti-vax movement. And it has a profound and dangerous impact on public health. But then when people hear or read stories like this and you think, 
wow, these pharmaceutical companies like Pfizer, these money-grubbing billionaires will do anything and promote anything, even when scientists are not confirming it. Why should we ever trust them? And so this is part of the problem in terms of convincing people about the necessity for vaccinations. Well, absolutely. And when you couple that with the what we're calling kind of vaccine apartheid, the failure, refusal of these big corporations, big pharma to make these vaccinations available globally, you know, they are just setting us up for another wave, another global catastrophe, another wave of the continuing global catastrophe, which is COVID-19, the COVID-19 pandemic. And I have another story, unfortunately, more breaking news about what is this really systemic greed of big pharma and working in hand with the government often. So on Friday, the acting head of the Food and Drug Administration, Janet Woodcock, called for an independent investigation into the agency's review and approval of a drug for Alzheimer's that was never really proven to work. And when it was approved, members of the advisory panel resigned in protest and then complained to corporate media outlets like the New York Times. Dr. Aaron Kesselheim, a Harvard Medical School professor, is one of those who resigned, calling it probably the worst drug approval decision in recent U.S. history. This drug, now it's named Adelhelm, preys upon the hopes of people really for a treatment or cure for what is a very debilitating disease that we know robs people of their full, you know, proper brain function as they get older. And the drug maker Biogen put an annual price tag of $56,000 on the drug administered as a monthly intravenous infusion. And it's the first drug to treat Alzheimer's disease that's been approved in nearly two decades. So another person who resigned from the advisory panel told the Washington Post he didn't want to be involved in a sham process. And this review of the process for approving the drug is also being called for because it seems that the FDA officials were basically in close contact with this corporation, Biogen, during their approval process. And even the people on the advisory committee said that often when the FDA officials would present to them, it sounded like they were just quoting like talking points from the corporation to approve this drug. So beyond the whole $56,000 outrageous annual price per patient, specialists in healthcare and healthcare costs said that it would probably be a lot more because there would be additional costs for screening and monitoring patients. And also that most of these costs would be borne by Medicare because this is a program to pay for healthcare for the elderly. And I'll end with this tweet from a, an entrepreneur, I guess, internet entrepreneur slash capitalist, Dan Price, who even admitted online, he said, U.S. healthcare in a nutshell, colon, one, the FDA approves Alzheimer's drug that may not even work. Two, 
Drug costs $56,000 annually, which will drive up insurance premiums for everyone else. And then three, drug maker Biogen stock surges 38%, making it $17 billion richer in one day. So this is a story that we need to follow as this review gets underway and members of Congress are weighing in, basically asking seniors and taxpayers to pay $56,000 for a drug that doesn't even work or hasn't even been proven to be effective. And this is just the same kind of behavior that you can expect from the FDA. I mean, I hate to say it, but it's, you know, we've seen it time and time again. Purdue Pharma, you know, who essentially caused the opioid crisis with very clear intention when you look back at documents, the Purdue family just made friends with some of the FDA officials who they knew would be approving and reapproving and reapproving their drugs to make sure that they could make the most amount of money. I mean, the FDA even approved letting them price out these opioids by amount of milligrams. So they had a clear incentive not only to sell more pills to more people, but also to ramp up the amount of milligrams, really increasing the likelihood of addiction on every individual who had these pills. And this was approved by the FDA because Purdue is so wealthy and has you know such a reach that they're able to really get those things through. You know, getting the vaccine is probably the number one thing that can prevent the pandemic from getting worse, especially getting the vaccines out to the rest of the world. But when you hear about stories like this and you start to you know really see just how corrupt it all is, it's you know, I get it. It's not the way it should be. Yeah. And, you know, I mean, these these are never considered to be criminal offenses, you know, like the Purdue Pharmaceutical Corporation, the family that runs that, the Sacklers, they did get in legal trouble, right, over the completely ridiculous criminal, you know, drug trafficking enterprise that they were running. And, you know, there is an $8 billion settlement agreed to. And yet there are no criminal charges for the people who are in charge of this deadly enterprise. And the same is true of so many different aspects of healthcare. I mean, when you jack up the price of a medication or you push a quote unquote medication that you know is going to get people addicted to deadly drugs, I mean, you're killing people or at the very least, you're contributing to the death of a person. If a normal person does that, if you or I or anybody listening to this did something like that, we would be held criminally liable and we would be sent to prison for doing it. Uh, But if you're the CEO of a corporation, if you're a billionaire family with an expert legal team working around the clock for you, you can avoid those types of consequences and you might have to pay a fine, but you'll never face true justice unless there's some great change in society, never face true justice because you're shielded from prison time. That's exactly what we see. That's exactly right. And that happens all while there's people losing their jobs in the pandemic who are dealing with this opioid crisis, who are dealing with all sorts of, you know, really horrendous issues that, you know, if we just, I don't know, use the Sackler family money that they made off of the opioid crisis to actually deal with the crisis, actually prevent things like that from happening again and put them in prison for what they did, you know, that would be a very, very different system that we live under. I don't know if you guys are in the mood for a happy story, but there's a very exciting story that happened here in Washington, D.C. that I can share with y'all. Walter, maybe you'll enjoy hearing about this. This is the Washington Post, and their headline reads, Everything was going wrong in his life. Then he won D.C.'s vaccine lottery. So I'm sure people have heard about this. There are these vaccine lotteries that are happening in a number of different states now that pretty much 
everybody who's really wanted a vaccine has gotten one there. It's a method to try to get more people vaccinated. I'll just read you a few sentences because this sounds exciting, right? Like he won a vaccine lottery. That's great. Maybe he got some money. Maybe, you know, he's doing good. He got a vaccine. For Sung Haju, a 44-year-old Air Force veteran, one disaster kept leading to the next during the coronavirus pandemic. He lost his job during the early weeks of the pandemic. He eventually lost his home, his van, and other sources of support. By the time the coronavirus vaccines became widespread, Joe was arriving destitute at a D.C. homeless shelter. Meanwhile, the district is putting in place an initiative that several states and cities across the country have tried, lotteries with big ticket prizes. In D.C., the initiative included a free car and $10,000 grocery store gift cards to induce reluctant residents to get their coronavirus vaccines. On the f- his first day at the shelter, he got a vaccine. And then this week, to his great surprise, he learned he had won the lottery. And his prize was a year of free rides on the D.C. metro system, which is the subway. Walter, this man served in the Air Force, which many politicians talk about how important it is to support our veterans. And yet he lost his job in the pandemic. He lost his home. He then he lost his car, which presumably he'd been staying in. And then he's sleeping in a shelter. And the Washington Post is writing about this like this is exciting. Like he's getting free rides on the metro, but he doesn't have a home. Yeah, I can't believe it. I mean, I can't believe that this is a happy story in the eyes of the editors of the Washington Post. And there are so many stories like this in the media. I mean, it's really like a like a let them eat cake kind of moment, because I think to, to any normal person, this would be actually a horrifying story. Yeah, I mean, this person and everybody else who's in a similar situation, who's homeless, should receive a home. And you know what, there's actually no need to organize a lottery to do that, because there are many, many vacant homes for every homeless person. I mean, you would just have to take it away from real estate developers who are doing literally nothing with it. They're just sitting on it and speculating with it. And that's certainly true in the District of Columbia, where the speculative real estate boom has pushed so many people out of their homes and out of their communities. Yeah, I mean, it's just shocking. I'm speechless. And when you really think about also the fact that people reading this story outside of Washington, D.C., like in New York City, for example, where so many homeless people ride the subway as a place to be, you know, as a place to actually live, you know, maybe even overnight. I mean, it's especially cruel. You know, it's basically saying, okay, this is your house. You can lay down on the metro or, you know, sit upright or in a metro seat. And this is where you can be as a homeless person. Right. And especially because Metro police frequently are trying to kick people out who they think are homeless or don't have, you know, housing to stay in, which is, you know, where are you supposed to be? You don't have a home. You don't have anything. It's the kind of thing that you would want any government to take care of. Esther, I'm going to turn to you for our last story before we go to Walter on Liberation News headlines. This is a crazy story. Another head scratcher. Former Secretary of State Mike Pompeo and Donna Brazil, who is a very well-known Democrat here in the United States, are some of the U.S. politicians that went to Berlin to speak at a pro-MEK rally, which is a very violent party that is out of Iran. I mean, this is a complete head-scratcher. Can you tell us more about MEK and also just what on earth is happening and what they were doing there? Yeah, well, I don't have any exciting paragraphs like you had earlier, (laughs) but I can tell you that on Saturday, former Secretary of State Mike Pompeo and Democratic strategist Don Brazil were among the U.S. officials participating in this rally in Berlin, Germany, in support of the National Council of Resistance of Iran. That's the official name 
of the political wing of the group known as the MEK. Now, the MEK is considered a terror organization by Iran and was once designated as a terror group by the U.S. and also by the EU until a decade ago. And we know that the MEK has conducted terrorist attacks inside Iran, including one in 1981 that killed 70 people and among them Iran's president and premier. In the 80s, the MEK moved to Iraq and were essentially a part of Saddam's military Iranians who fought against their own country you know, in the Iran-Iraq war. So they are hated in Iran. This would be like, you know, during the Civil War, some other countries supporting the Confederacy to fight against the United States, for example, if we want to use that example, okay? So Pompeo, you know, who defended the Trump administration's hardline stance against Iran over the nuclear program, claimed in his video addressed that the Iranian government was at its most precarious state, you know, since the 1979 Islamic revolution and called for sustained pressure on Tehran and compared the newly elected president, Ibrahim Raisi, to a mass murderer. You know, this is the kind of rhetoric Pompeo was using in this address to this rally. And Donna Brazil apparently echoed what he was saying and, you know, praised the MEK for being, you know, brave and courageous, having remarkable courage and leadership. And we want to put this in context now. Iran is also the target of these murders. We call murderous sanctions, economic sanctions. And according to the Lancet Public Health Journal, you know, Iran was one of the first countries outside China to have like a rapid increase in the number of COVID cases. Iran has not been able to purchase the type of medicines and equipment needed to treat its population. So, you know, as we talked about Cuba earlier, Iran has also been the victim of this really punitive, murderous sanctions. I think genocidal sanctions that are allowing its population to basically be punished and to die of COVID because the country cannot adequately serve the population. So, This is the type of group that is opposing Iran, actively trying to destabilize Iran, that Pompeo and Brazil, and I should also add Cory Booker, Senator Cory Booker, went there to praise and be supportive of in terms of this rally in Berlin, Germany over the weekend. And I want to particularly point out uh, Donna Brazil's participation, Cory Booker's participation, because Given, you know, the suffering inflicted on the Iranian people, for Donna Brazil to be there, for Cory Booker to be there, while at the same time they are giving lip service to railing against racist police murder in the U.S., racist voter suppression here in the U.S., it really shows the bankruptcy of the Democratic Party, the Democratic platform, to universal human rights. If African Americans are struggling for human rights here, we have to be in solidarity for human rights of all people. It can't be our lives matter here at the seat of empire while being a part of this imperialist project to destroy other people in Iran, Yemen, Cuba, or anybody else. So just like Biden's inauguration, I was talking about the young black poet they had on stage while at the same time they're contributing to the suffering of black people in Venezuela. So anyway, I wanted to link this also because Mike Pompeo was one of the architects of 
making sure that the effort by African countries to have the UN Human Rights Commission investigate the United States for human rights violations after the murder of George Floyd, he was instrumental in thwarting that effort and having this investigation instead be global. And we didn't report it on this show yet, but that UN report finally came out where the UN human rights chief, you know, urged nations to take action to basically root out systemic racism all around the globe and particularly called out for reparations for African descendant people all around the, the globe. And it particularly looked at cases here in the United States. So I wanted to bring that out because here you have Donna Brazil in Iran, Cory Booker in Iran, you know, praising this terrorist group with human rights violations against the people of Iran, while at the same time, they're with Mike Pompeo, who's basically thwarted the investigation into human rights violations against African descendant people here in the United States. Disgraceful. Just disgraceful. Truly, truly disgraceful. Thanks for those stories, Esther. I think they're extremely important. Walter, let's talk about your publication. You're the editor of Liberation News, which always has a number of important articles. You normally bring three stories to tell listeners about. But first of all, how can they check out Liberation News? And then what are the stories that you've got this week? Yeah, thanks, Nicole. Well, go to liberationnews.org every day. I encourage everybody to check out the website every day. We've always got new content going up on there. And at the very top of the website, when you go to liberationnews.org, you'll see a button to sign up for our weekly newsletter where we'll send you the most important stories of the past week, both international, national, and local to militant journalism reports from activists on the front line of the people's struggles all across the country. One article that I definitely want to highly, highly recommend, it's titled Cuban President Diaz-Canal, Revolutionaries to the Streets. And this is a translation of the speech given by Cuban President Diaz-Canal when he went to the site of those protests that we were talking about at the beginning of the show. This is a crucially, crucially important thing to read. It's not a super long speech, but I think it's essential context that you absolutely will not find, an argument that you absolutely will not find in the corporate media in the United States. So check that out. Cuban President Diaz-Canal, Revolutionaries to the Streets. You can also check out the Party for Socialism and Liberation Statement, by the way, up on Liberation News 2 about this very same episode. Another piece that I want to recommend is titled Eyewitness on the Ground with Militants of Mexico's Fourth Transformation. The Fourth Transformation is the name of the political program adopted by supporters of Mexican President Andres Manuel Lopez Obrador and the Morena Movement Party that supports him. That's the National Regeneration Movement, Morena. This is a report from a member of the Party for Socialism and Liberation who participated as an invited election observer in the legislative election in Mexico last month. And he also had a chance to visit some very exciting, interesting, important grassroots projects that members, supporters of the fourth transformation have going on. So I encourage people to check that out too. Really important piece of journalism. And finally, I want to encourage people to check out an article titled Boston Activists Protest Illegal U.S. Arrest of Venezuelan Diplomat Alex Saab. 
the case of Alex Saab is very, very important, and it illustrates just how cruel U.S. sanctions economic warfare around the world is. Alex Saab was trying to negotiate a business deal that would essentially permit Venezuela to import food, something as basic as food is being denied to the people of Venezuela in sufficient quantities because of the economic war, the blockade that has been imposed on that country by the United States. And Alex Saab was arrested, was arrested simply for trying to feed, help feed the Venezuelan people. The United States is trying to have him extradited to the US where he will receive, of course, not a fair trial from the quote unquote justice system here in the US. So activists in Boston and activists in many other parts of the country are taking to the streets to protest this injustice. So again, liberationnews.org, sign up for the newsletter at the top and check in every day. And Walter, we've got one more really exciting component of the show here today. It's an interview with socialist candidate for the New York City mayor. The Democratic primary just ended, but there is the actual race for who will be the mayor of New York City. And there is an actual bona fide socialist on the ticket. And you interviewed her earlier today. We want to turn now to the crucial mayoral election in New York City, and we're happy to be joined by Kathy Rojas, the socialist candidate running for mayor of the city. Rojas is a Queens native, daughter of Colombian immigrants, an organizer with the Party for Socialism and Liberation, and currently works as a public high school teacher in Elmhurst. Welcome to the show, Kathy. Hi, thank you for having me. So, I mean, obviously, this is a really big deal, not just for local politics, but nationally. New York City is huge, one of the centers of capitalism in the whole world, but of course, also with massive problems for working class people. Eric Adams has won the Democratic primary, and he's being sort of held up as this hero among the more right-wing elements of the Democratic Party. You are the socialist candidate. Tell us about what your campaign is all about. What are the most important issues for working-class New Yorkers? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so just a little bit about Eric Adams. Yes, he's been kind of like, well, I would like to say that first, we had a very low voter turnout for the Democratic primaries. But he's being kind of like put on a pedestal as this kind of like progressive Democrat. But actually what really helped him was his conservative vote and the fact that he's actually extremely moderate. But that's not what New York City needs right now. You know, we were living in the epicenter of the epicenter of a COVID-19 pandemic. We were literally seeing how our immigrant families were left to fend for themselves, were dying. When we look at who was dying because of COVID-19, it was in communities of color, right? We saw black and brown working class communities where where there was the highest rate of COVID-19 deaths. And this isn't just because of COVID-19, right? Because it wasn't necessarily just COVID-19 that killed them. We could have easily saved their lives had we for years been funding hospitals been funding affordable housing and accessible housing for all? Had we given undocumented people access to unemployment and to grants? And then even right now, I don't know if people have seen like on Twitter and social media, we're seeing lots of strong rains and tornado warnings and all of these things in New York City. And what's happening is that 
we're seeing major, major flooding of the New York City MTA and of people's residents, right? And then where is it happening? It's not happening in the Upper East Side. It's happening in the Bronx, in poor Black and brown communities. So really, this becomes kind of life or death for our people, right? This election. Because if we have another mayor that is only his loyalty is to his donors, like we see with Eric Adams, who was one of the mayoral candidates with the highest donations from real estate developers, the same ones that are trying to displace our community members, and who obviously loved by the police union and backed by the police union, who has been brutally harassing and killing our people for years, then we really see that this is an extremely, extremely important mayoral election. And it is more important now than ever for us to have a socialist candidate on the ballot. Why? Because only our platform addresses the issues of housing inequality, right? And inaccessible housing. We have a plan to house every single New Yorker where we would completely eradicate homelessness. And we plan to do this by ensuring that New York City becomes a rent control city. So what does that mean? That means that landlords wouldn't be able to charge more than 20% of the average income in a certain community. That means that people would be able to actually afford their housing. If they made, let's say, $50,000 a year, their monthly payments would be $833, which is affordable for the average New Yorker. On top of that, we know that in New York City, we have 250,000 empty apartment units and we have 120,000 people sleeping in shelters. So we have more vacant units than we have homeless people. So what we want to do is seize those units and give that housing to the homeless in order to completely eradicate homelessness and poverty in our community. We also are planning on fully funding the MTA, fully funding its infrastructure, making it public and free. And we want to do this through a tax on the millionaires and billionaires of the city who haven't been paying taxes, who benefited from these small business grants, who have been exploiting workers and many times making workers work during COVID-19, which increased the death rates in our city. So we want to use this millionaire's tax in order to help us fund these different repairs. On top of that, we understand that people are worried because of the safety in New York City. So we want to fund programs for safety that work, right? So if we look at the NYPD, the NYPD only solves 2% of major crimes and many times are the perpetrators of gun violence in our communities, right? Of using gun violence against our community members or even the threat of gun violence. So we don't want to fund the NYPD. What we want to fund is what works. And what what we've seen that has worked is violence interruption programs, right? Which have had up to a 63% prevention in shootings in um, places like the South Bronx and East New York. So you want to fund community-based violence intervention programs. We want to make sure that New York City is actually, is truly a sanctuary city. And what that means is to end the collaboration between the NYPD and ICE, stop allowing ICE to come into New York City to deport our community members, and then also giving immigrants the right to vote in city elections 
Immigrants are paying more taxes than millionaires and billionaires of the city. They were the essential workers of New York City during the COVID-19 pandemic. We literally could have not been fed without immigrant workers. And therefore, they should have the right to vote for their elected officials and for policy in their communities. So those are just some of the highlights of our platform. We have a very long platform which people could view on rojasformayor.nyc. I'm on that website now, rojasformayor.nyc, rojas, the number four, mayor.nyc. I see one of the campaign platform points, number eight, it's fund quality public education, providing funding for social workers, nurses, librarians, having an anti-racist curriculum. You know, unlike Eric Adams, I mean, you're not a professional politician, you're not a cop, you're a teacher. Give us a sense of like, what is the situation in the school's what do you, what is socialist proposed to do about it? Yeah, so I am a teacher. I'm also born and raised in Queens, New York. I am a product of New York City public schools. I went to New York City public schools my entire life. And I went to state and city public universities for both my bachelor's and my master's degree. And now I'm a teacher in Elmers. So I have really seen firsthand, first of all, even if we look at this anti-racist We also spoke about including an anti-racist and anti-sexist curriculum, right? Because we see firsthand how many times textbooks and the curriculums that have been imposed on our kids are very Eurocentric, right? And we want to change that. But we also want to be teaching students about consent, right? A lot of students aren't learning about that anywhere, not at their home, not at their school, So that's a little bit about the curricular changes that we want to do. We also want to incorporate restorative justice programming for many, many years. And, you know, I was a witness to this as a New York City public school student where schools served as a prison pipeline, right? Students were suspended multiple times until going into juvenile facilities. And then that created, you know, a revolving door of criminal justice issues, which ended up many times leading to them going to jail or even being deported, right? And at the end of the day, nothing was solved in our communities. Students didn't learn conflict resolution skills. They didn't learn communication skills. So really what we want to incorporate in our schools is this restorative justice practices as opposed to suspension, where students are actually gain the tools for conflict resolution and aren't just sent to like a suspension room where they speak to no one or sent home until they become a juvenile, right? We want to completely take cops out of school. Cops have no place in schools. I mean... Both as a student and now as a teacher, I do not understand the use of cops in schools. I think that even we have seen some crises where we've had violent fights and even the school safety kind of didn't know what to do about it. And we see this in school shootings a lot of times that there are school safety officers there that don't do anything. And they're taking away from our budget. Whereas if we create preventative measures in our schools, like violence interruption programs, more guidance counselors, more therapists and mental health services for our students, we won't even get to see those problems, right? We also want to eliminate standardized testing. For many years, the regions, the SATs, and things of this sort have been used as a way to measure students' learning and evaluate teachers, but it's also sometimes used to determine school funding. And if we look at the history of these standardized tests 
they have a long history of trying to create racial inequality in our country. And most cities don't have standardized testing and they don't actually test for the tools that students need in order to be successful in life or college. And therefore, it is a completely unnecessary exam that truly just helps to take away funding from schools that most need it and to take away opportunities from our working class students of color. But we also want to fully fund schools, right? Like during the pandemic, I work in a 100% Latinx, 100% recent immigrant school. And it was in Elmhurst, New York, right next to Elmhurst Hospital, which was one of the hospitals in the country that was most impacted by COVID because of the fact that for years, our politicians have been closing down hospitals and that was the only public hospital in the area. Yeah, so we really saw how, you know, our students, were food insecure, right? There was no way for them to obtain food. It was very hard for them to quarantine because due to the rent prices, many times we have students that are living, you know, eight people in one room. And when their parents are undocumented and weren't able to access unemployment, they had to go to work every day. So then how were they able to quarantine? And what we saw then Elmer's was one of the places that had the highest levels of COVID-19, right? So we really want to make sure that part of our platform and ensuring that everybody has access to food, housing, and healthcare is also part of our educational platform. Because we know that when students' basic needs are taken care of, then they'll be able to grow and to have self-actualization. All right, Kathy, we are almost out of time. If our listeners want to get involved in your campaign, support your campaign, how can they do that? So if they go to rojas4mayor.nyc, so that's rojas, then the number 4, mayor.nyc, and then they'll see a tab that says volunteer. If they sign up to volunteer, our volunteer coordinator will contact them as soon as possible. If they would like to donate, they could click donate there. And then we're also looking for spaces to fundraising in New York City. So if anyone has a space that they would uh, allow us to use for a fundraiser, we would greatly appreciate that. All right. That was the voice of Kathy Rojas. She is the Party for Socialism and Liberation's nominee for mayor of New York City. Well, thank you, Walter. That was a really great interview to hear from, again, the only socialist candidate running for New York City mayor. I mean, that would be an incredible, incredible win But even just the race is incredibly important to show people that the Democrats do not have a stranglehold over New York and there are other options out there. That is all we've got for you today, listeners. Thank you so much for joining us. We have more content as always coming tomorrow and Thursday. We've got our interview with Richard Wolf tomorrow, Dr. Richard Wolf, and then the real story on Thursday. If you haven't already subscribed, if you're hearing this and you haven't subscribed to Patreon, $5 a month, $10 a month, $20 a month, whatever you can afford, any amount is incredibly helpful to keep this programming going. We've got a lot of very small contributors we appreciate greatly. Even just 16 cents a day, which is the $5 a month mark, is very helpful for us. And that can mean that you can register for our seminar with Brian. That is tomorrow night at seven o'clock. We'll be talking a lot about the U.S.-China relationship, but I'm sure we'll take other questions as well. Send in your questions. Let us know what you want us to ask Brian, and we will ask him those things, and then you can hear about all of his thoughts. So thank you all so much again for joining, for listening, for supporting the show, and we'll see you tomorrow. 
You've been listening to The Socialist Program with Brian Becker, where we bring you news and views about the world for those who want to change it. If you enjoyed the show, subscribe on your favorite podcast app and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. We can only continue our work bringing you high-quality news, analysis, and history with the support of our listeners. Connect with us and become a patron at patreon.com slash the socialist program and receive an invitation to participate in an exclusive monthly seminar with Brian Becker. Thank you.